Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Welcome, everyone, to our Thursday Fashion History Mystery Edition, where we answer you, our listeners' questions. And we've recently received two very colorful inquiries from listeners Catherine Shipke and Jenna Quick for a mini-sode on Pantone, to which Cass and I both responded, oh, yes. Oh, yeah, because the name Pantone will certainly be familiar to any of you who work in printing or design professions, But for those of you who do not, today we investigate what is arguably the shadiest company in the world, Pantone. Now perhaps the most widely recognized firm working in the spectrum of color intelligence, Pantone was founded in 1963 with the intention of creating a global standard for communication about color. So prior to this, professional printers in particular struggled with the ways in which specific colors, hues, and shades were referenced within the design industries. And to rectify this kind of dearth of technical nomenclature, in 1963, Pantone issued its Pantone Matching System, a collection of 500 colors with names that codified the exact mixture of the CMYK inks used to create the color. And this allowed for a greater consistency of color in products produced not only from one printing vendor to another, but also entirely around the globe, which is, of course, incredibly important when it comes to branding. You know, say, for instance, that you're using two different printing vendors to print your packaging, and you're using someone on the East Coast, and you're using someone on the West Coast in order to supply your regional customers, you know, CAS, without needlessly shipping all your packaging supplies all the way across the country. So so when you went to these two different vendors and you spent specified that you wanted bright green for your logo without a standard way to convey the exact shade of bright green, you might just end up with two different bright greens used for your logo. Which was a problem. And I just want to sidebar real quick and say, can we please standardize sizing and clothing manufacturing? (laughs) We've done it for coloring, have not quite managed to get there with clothing. But anyways, I digress. (laughs) I think think the issue for that is more everyone has different body types. And I think 3D body scanning is going to be the answer to that. And that's that's just like coming now to the market. That's right. That's very true. So episode to come. So although Pantone was not the first company to endeavor to solve the problem of standardization, it quickly became the industry leader. Within a decade, Pantone had sold more than 100,000 of its signature color chip books, which allowed for quick visual perusal and selection from Pantone's signature palettes. A 2015 profile on Pantone in the business journal Fast Company cites Pantone's own estimation of the number of chip books sold now to be in the millions, which is especially interesting because they are quite pricey. Yes, they are. Um, And another interesting side note, Cass, is that long before Pantone, there's actually a historic precedent of designers relying on color swatch books. So during the 19th century, French dye and textile manufacturers, who of course being French, we're setting the pace of fashion, as we know. <laughs> um, but but these manufacturers were regularly producing swatch books, which kind of functioned as advertisements of their wares for the upcoming season. And they distributed them to their customers 
And eventually, over the course of time, the designers that were receiving these color swatch cards came to rely on them as a form of color forecasting. In the words of business and design historian Reggie Blaschek, some type of system was needed to keep track of what colors had been popular in recent shopping seasons, and more important to anticipate what variation of those colors were likely to win consumer hearts in the upcoming shopping season. The woman who wanted a cerise ribbon to embellish her new cerise, which we should say is a bright or deep red color, Easter bonnet, and match her new cerise gloves was likely to be exasperated by a dry goods shop that only carried rose or purple. The shape. She walked out (laughs) and marched over to a competing store where the merchandise had been better selected and was in sync with the latest Vogue. Official trade organizations of the French dyeing and textile industries now took over the task of monitoring sales trends as well as the oversight and production of color shade cards for their respective disciplines. And this legacy of color forecasting remains at the core of companies today like Pantone, which offers a variety of color trend and forecast publications tailored to specific industry uses in print and digital graphics, product packaging, fashions, interiors, basically cast just about anything else that calls for a designer to research and then decide upon the color of their upcoming product lines. This aspect of Pantone's range of services is perhaps best publicized annually when it names the Pantone Color of the Year. Instituted in 1999, this year actually marks the 20th anniversary of the Color of the Year selection process. So when the company says, quote, requires thoughtful consideration and trend analysis to arrive at the selection each year, Pantone's color experts at the Pantone Color Institute comb the world looking for new color influences. And this can include the entertainment industry, films and production, traveling art collections, and new artists, all areas of design, popular travel destination, as well as new lifestyles and socioeconomic conditions. And the 2019 Pantone Color of the Year, do-do-do-do, is Living Mm -hmm. Coral, which the company describes as emitting the, quote, desired, familiar, and energizing aspects of color found in nature in its glorious yet unfortunately more elusive display beneath the sea. This vivifying and evervescent color mesmerizes the eye and mind. I'm, I'm glad, Cass, that you brought up the Pantone Color Institute because they are a division of Pantone where some really cool things are happening. Um, interested parties can work with them to receive education on the psychology and emotional impact of color. Wow. Or um, they can also work with Pantone's experts to develop custom colors to support their brand identity. I mean, colors that kind of haven't existed before in the world. Um, And the luxury purveyor Tiffany worked with their um, custom color experts back in 2001 um, to standardize their signatures robin egg blue across any medium it was needed for because sometimes they were getting different results when they were printing on paper versus digital. So they can, Pantone can really get in there and and problem solve um, for you in this way. And when Tiffany worked with them, Pantone actually gave their signature color its own name. It's called 1837 Blue. And 1837 is actually a reference to 1837, which was the year that Tiffany was founded. Oh, I love that. I know. And I read an adorable article recently about how Pantone worked with the film series Despicable Me to create their color Minion Yellow, which is the first time a Pantone (laughs) color has ever been named after a character. And if that doesn't put a smile on your face, (laughs) I don't know what will because they're adorable. Um, And another interesting fact is that 
Um, in light of their product's ubiquitous use in all different realms of design, the company in and of itself has actually developed this kind of we're trendy with the cool kids reputation. <laughs> yeah. And Pantone has started to capitalize on, on their kind of popularity with their own merchandise. And they have this Pantone lifestyle line that offers coffee mugs, notebooks, holiday ornaments. And so many of these are playfully riffing on the, the minimalist chic of their actual color chip cards. It's, it's They're very cool. <laughs> and if that's not enough, there are a wide variety of partnerships that Pantone has undertaken in recent years, like their collaboration with the cosmetics retailer Sephora on their Pantone Universe lipstick line, which of course you can wear when you are in Brussels, April, staying at the Pantone Hotel, which invites you to quote unquote, stay in color. And you better bet that I looked this up immediately. <laughs> it's super cute. It situates seven different color palettes against that sort of white box modernist aesthetic. And it's super affordable. I was surprised to learn. Um, I guess the rooms start at only 59 euros a night. Oh, that's cool. I would totally stay there if I was in Brussels. <laughs> I've never actually been to Brussels, so I'd like to go and stay at the Pantone Hotel. Um, so, lady listeners, Catherine and Jenna, we hope that we answered your questions about the history of Pantone and the Pantone Color of the Year. This, The company is basically like the go-to for color applications across the design industries, and, and they're still going strong after more than 50 years in the biz. And now their original 500 color offerings are now 2,500, more than 2,500 official Pantone colors. So I just want to say, Cass, on that note, I really want some of that Pantone universe <laughs> lipstick. Yes, absolutely. And of course, you love your lipsticks. I mean, I'm a little curious to know how many you have at this point. I have no idea. And frankly, <laughs> I'm a little afraid to count. I'm, I'm just going to say there's a lot. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Speaking of color and makeup, you and I were speaking about this recently. Yes, so I have been waiting for this opportunity, and this was perfect, to talk about this documentary that I recently saw, which was actually on the celebrity makeup artist Kevin O'Quan. It's a documentary called Kevin O'Quan, Beauty and the Beast in Me, and it's currently streaming on Netflix. Yes, the film documents the meteoric career of celebrity makeup artist Kevin O'Quan. And, but not only his life and, and working in makeup, but also struggles with his personal demons that he carried. And he very tragically died uh, at just the age of 40. Right. And to say Kevin was beloved is a bit of an understatement. And this documentary is really a testament to that. It's full of interviews and featurettes with celebrities who are also his dear friends. After his death, hundreds of hours of video footage were discovered at his home because he was always filming um, when he was doing makeup, when he was uh, working with all of these people. So he has these incredible intimate behind the scenes footage of his makeup sessions with people like model and actress Annie McDowell, Amber Valletta, uh, Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford. He, and he actually did Cindy's makeup for her very first Vogue cover. At the height of Kevin's career, he was doing makeup for not only the top models, but also some of the most famous performers of the time, including Cher, Janet Jackson, Tina Turner, and Liza Minnelli. And he was also really good friends with Gwyneth Paltrow. And, and she has said that, quote, women helped him get through the pain of his childhood. And, and what she's referencing there is that as a young gay man in the South, Kevin had a horrible time growing up with bullying. He received death threats at his school so much so it got so bad that he, he was actually forced to drop out of school. 
And he said, quote, I didn't have any friends and I didn't have any support. The only thing I really had was Cher and Barbara Streisand and everything stereotypical gay kids have, which is incredible, Cass, because not very long after that, he was doing makeup for both of these women that he so revered. It's a really great documentary and it includes interviews with many of these uh, celebrities that knew and loved Kevin, but also with his parents. And we find out that Kevin was adopted, something he actually struggled with quite a lot throughout his life. But his adoptive parents were quite supportive of their son. And one of the most touching pieces from the film is an interview with his father who talks about giving up going to church after the pastor told him that homosexuality was a sin. And he says, my religion changed because there was no way someone was going to tell me that something was wrong with my son because he was gay. So this film is more than the portrait of a famous makeup artist. It's the portrait of the man behind the fame, and I cannot recommend it enough. Me too. Go check it out. Cass, I think that does it for this week's episode of Fashion History Mystery. If you'd like to write to us with a question for a future episode, you can direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is, of course, where we post images supporting each week's episode. You could also email us your question at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Don't forget to tune in to our full-length episode on Tuesday. And as always, thank you to Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio makes the show possible each and every week. Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.